Hey there, Docolo. Hope you are all doing well, and we thank you for pressing play on the Documenteers podcast, the podcast about documentary films. My name is Bob Sham, and today's episode is our first full episode within a world of social isolation. Uh, my heart goes out to all of those with anxiety issues. I've been dealing with some ups and downs myself, and I know this is affecting everything. And we hope graciousness and understanding upon those who have control over, say, your rental property. Hopefully banks will understand. And truly, there's a lot of shit that property owners and banks would rather not pay themselves. So this episode will drop about two and a half weeks after I record this intro. And it seems like we live in a day by day, week by week, month by month kind of living all of a sudden in a world where every, anything seems to be able to happen for the time being. Documenteers episodes will be recorded on video chat applications, and this is being our first of those episodes. Good old Drew and I get together and cherry pick a 30 for 30 about one of the most notorious and often considered greatest wrestlers of all time. Who else can we be referencing other than Ric Flair and Rory Karp's 30 for 30 Nature Boy? Two wrestling-themed docs in a row. I hope you forgive, but there's good stories here. I'm not announcing next week's episodes during this as things seem to take left turns often, but maybe you noticed our newest near-daily show within a show that's been popping up called The Quarantineers. Consider them documentations of show personalities in raw and uncut casual conversations. It's actually been a pleasure to see my friends' faces at this time, as we cannot go to each other's houses. We have some fun stuff planned that could very well be happening now. It's a lot of us right now as we have some time. But I recognize that a lot of you might be quarantined with kids and may have to get to the show in chunks after they're in bed. Podcasts are heard a lot on the way to jobs and during jobs. Regardless, there will be something for you. And I don't honestly know if the quarantine years will be going on for two more weeks or two more months. It's probably good news of it stops eventually that's pretty much that for more ways to get at us go to documentariespodcast.com and you can help us out by recommending subscribing and giving us five stars and a review on apple podcasts many of you should have more time to do that so if you did i would greatly appreciate it thanks to john out in la for his hundred movies list he sent that was cool makes you want to make my own list but let's talk about the style and profile and limousine riding son of a gun known as Ric Flair, okay? Keep on docking. Here is a motion picture film. A thousand feet, 16,000 separate photographs. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. Now, Buddy Landell, it's so hard for me to sit back here in this studio looking at a guy out here hollering my name when last year I spent more money on spilled liquor in bars from one side of this world to the other than you made. You're talking to the Rolex wearing, diamond ring wearing, kiss stealing, woo, wheeling dealing, limousine riding, jet flying, son of a gun, and I'm having a hard time holding these alligators down.
We're probably going to have all kinds of technical issues, but we are going to do our first post-pandemic or what is it when it's not pre and it's not post? It's just pandemic, I guess. During pandemic? During quarantine, (laughs) or at least attempting to prevent a full-blown pandemic, for Christ's sake. But the Love in the time of coronavirus. Yeah. Goodbye, Rosie, queen of Corona. No lemon ice king of Corona. But we're talking about a 30 for 30. Woo! Yeah, that gives you a hint of what it's called. We're skipping around a little Woo! bit ahead. We were talking about the Hitman last week with Wrestling with Shadows. That was fun. You weren't there. You'll have to take my word for it. <laughs> and today we're talking about the 30 for 30 Nature Boy by Rory. Woo! Rory Karp. Yeah, and he's going to do that all episode long. <laughs> I just knew you'd do it if I didn't. I t- Woo! There it is. Woo! Is that, is that pretty good? Look, to be the man, though, you got to beat the man. Yeah, that's true. If you, if you want to beat the man, you got to beat off the man. Was that how it went? <laughs> I, I might have misheard it. You know what goes great together? Drinking. Well, drinking and what? What's the uh, other thing? And more drinking, I think. (laughs) That's what I'm taking away from this. (laughs) Your face and drinking. Oh, I can drink Jameson without having real bad reactions. Ooh, congratulations. What about black tar heroin? Uh, I'll try that later. Okay. You know what goes great together other than drinking and more drinking? Wrestling and opera classical music drew rick flair's coming to town Woo! and he's gonna do what he does best and that's take care of business Woo! It, this movie this 30 for 30 opens up watching some rick flair wrestling with some classical music going on and it works i'm i'm making these silly little videos in my boredom putting wrestling clips to opera i love it I'm down. It I worked. thought you were going to call the 2001 A Space Odyssey theme classic opera. Was not going to do that. That's the direction you were going in. I wouldn't have really argued with you. Now, who is this guy? Richard Fleer. 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 Tell us about him, Drew. Well, I think he's got a lot of sparkly robes and a baller-ass mullet. Oh, that was the introduction still. Yeah. <laughs> Angela was like shading his hair. And I'm like, look, if this was 1986, you'd be like... That's the perfect man with the perfect hair. Easily. (laughs) You know, a guy who was adopted in Minnesota, and every night, he just, every Saturday night at 6 p.m., he wanted to watch some wrestling. He was adopted. But his parents, they were like, nah, we just like community theater, and we're drama professors. I don't understand why. These sports are so plebeian. I don't understand why more people who like drama aren't into wrestling because a big part of the wrestling just as much as the physical stuff is the cells and the passion there's there's like a real storytelling with emotions there when done right so i'm really surprised well, you that... talked about the 80s they were uh you know there was that kind of suspension of disbelief thing that you you knew it wasn't real but you sort of didn't know it wasn't real so it just looks like mindless violence yeah back then Everyone, we're in a post-Kayfabe era, which means that every... Kayfabe means, like, the act, right? And everyone 
now understands that yes a lot of this is a put on but back in the day the line was a lot more blurred and there was you know probably up into the 90s people being like well the uh the cha- the belt matches are real i know that but and back in the day these old timers they took that shit seriously because to the point where if two wrestlers were in a rivalry a heel and a face and one accidentally walked into the bar same bar as the other one after they did all their practice or their shows, then they would have had to put up a fight to be able to sell to everyone in this town because word would go around that, oh, these guys are putting on a front. They're just trying to take our money. And so they would actually have to like duke it out in a bar to, (laughs) and if you were like a a face and people threatened you in a small town bar in the seventies in wrestling world, you had to fight them. And you had to win because you were supposed to be the most badass person in town because you came into town at the fucking fairgrounds in the middle of a ring in front of 1,500 people and declared that you were the most badass person. So you actually had to have some real grit and take your presence very seriously. It's got to be real, right? You can't, uh, what's what's your term? Breaking kayfabe? Can't break it? Yeah. So in a way, in terms of like the effort and the... And the passion behind it, that stuff is very real. And that's kind of what Ric Flair means when he's saying, no, wrestling is very real. I think that especially back then, that's why you couldn't get the the drama people and the community theater people involved so much. Because to them, it was, it was sports. It was the blood. It was, you know, razor blades and body slams. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't fit with, uh, with Shakespeare and... <laughs> Oh, there's a, there's yeah, a dressing up in period costumes. Shakespeare can get pretty bloody, man. There's some real passion there. It's not too far off. Look, man, let us have our jocks versus nerds thing. All right. That heel that or that face that fan favorite has to overcome all these odds has to do what's right in the face of all this healy promo trash. He's Are like stripping down as you talk about he's this? Like, getting fired up right now? Yeah, just don't worry about my arm moving down that way. This is a new thing. We could actually see each other. <laughs> it's like Hamlet. There's Through so- this video conference and stuff. Wrestlers, they're like muscular Hamlets uh, rummaging through Denmark because something's rotten and they got to make it right. And sometimes yeah. they lose. We understand that now, that it's just soap operas for dudes, but... Back then, maybe not so much. Yeah, his parents were kind of, they adopted him. They seemed like very nice people otherwise. But it's like, I guess. They didn't get this wrestling thing. They were doctors. If you're a doctor, you're busy all the time. The mom probably doesn't have much excuse. But they just weren't really into what Rick wanted to do. But he was into football and wrestling, Greco-Roman style, track and field. And um, he would go off to... He, he tells a story once about how he was ar- arrested with a fake ID in Minneapolis where he grew up. And his dad was just so disappointed in him. I think there's some households where it's like, yeah, I, that's my son. You know, he's in trouble, but that's not unusual. They really, it really seemed like uh, Rick's family had an expectation for him to mind them at all times. And look, we're no psychiatrists, but it seems pretty obvious Speak for yourself. that a lot more of his career went from trying to get attention because he couldn't get that attention 
so much at home. Nothing he did was all right. So even when he had his flashback scenes, like telling the story about getting arrested, he had to think about them in animated style. <laughs> yeah, we get some animation, some cartoons going on in this one. They were fine. <laughs> I thought they worked. There is a, a cartoony aspect to wrestling. All the flashback stories were done in cartoons. Yeah. There, wrestling can be a little cartoony in and of itself, so I didn't I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it. But hey, he ends up getting sent to boarding school. The yeah. ultimate signal of uh, your parents don't want anything to do with you, right? Yeah. We, your parents have money, and they don't want to deal with you. So you're going to boarding school. Flair ends up going to the University of uh, Minneapolis or something. He name drops all these schools that tried out for him. That he said tried to recruit Yeah, him. they were recruiting him. He was a football star. Yeah, and but then he said, I couldn't get into Michigan, even though he named one of them. But Angela guessed he didn't make the grade. Yeah, he, he said that later on, that he just couldn't make the grades. So even when he got into Minnesota, and he never actually got to play football because he, he was on academic probation the whole time he was there. But he was wrestling, and he was, he was getting into more trouble, which is also seen in animated flashbacks. Yeah. Of him just, uh, you know, inviting sorority girls over to the flat, frat house and being like, here's my dick. My... Woo! You know, there's it, this 30 for 30 does allude to how much Rick showed off his dick. But even then, I felt like it could have pre- pressed a little more into how much Ric Flair shook his dick at people, including women. And you can imagine that not every woman was like uh, infatuated with it. Everybody who's interviewed in this, and there are a few talking heads, but we get a lot of it from an interview with the director as well. But everybody who's attention, he needed that attention. He thrived on that. But he ends up getting invited to a wrestling camp by Minnesota wrestling legend Vern Gagne. Vern Gagne, old school. Now, Rick grew up watching this guy wrestler. Wrestler. He grew up watching him wrestler. And wrestlers. He, and he also grew up watching him wrestle on Saturday Night Wrestling. That back in the day where guys could be called Bruiser and Crusher, and it'd be an original name. <laughs> the first Crusher? So Rick, of course he flunks out of school. He's not an academic. He'll be the first to tell you. And he drove to Chicago, didn't even tell his parents, to train with Gagne. And he's in the class with Ricky Steamboat. Remember Ricky Steamboat? Ricky, yeah, man, the dragon. The dragon steamboat. Your last name's Steamboat, but you're also the dragon, because obviously Steamboat's not your real last name. He's both the dragon and the steamboat. But dragons can kind of breathe steam, right? And that powers a steamboat. I, I see where he's going with this. I don't know. It just seems like two separate things. But uh, when I was a kid, he would, like, spew the kerosene over the torch and make big bursts of flame. Dragon. Yeah. But I think back in the early NWA days when he was feuding with Flair, he was just Ricky Steamboat. So what did he do then? What do you mean, what did he do then? Did he paddle up river? Did he... <laughs> <laughs> no, he's just a really good wrestler. Breathe fire? He's just a really good wrestler. I don't recall him breathing too much fire in the early days. Oh man, the most of them tell about how crazy the wrestling camp that Gagne ran Dude, was. Because t- Gagne was known as being a... Uh, what's the word? Technical wrestler. Yeah, yeah. Tell him, go through this training. This is wild. Oh, this sounds like so much fun, right? And we get to see it all animated as well. You got to run up this building, which is a 21 flight fire escape. So you got to run up it, you got to run down it. Then you got a fireman carry one of your buddies up those same 21 flights of stairs. 
You get to the top, let them down, come back down. Then they have to carry you up. Then you got to wheelbarrow each other up there. You walk so the person on, your on the hands. bottom with their legs getting held. Yeah. It's just, yeah, walking your hands up every one of these steps on 21 flights. And Rick wants to quit real bad. And then you got to. This sounds and difficult. Then, and then after that, you got to spend an hour in the ring. And they talk about this is something that is when you're I've, that I've heard over and over again when you're starting to wrestle. The first thing you realize is like the ropes, right? It looks like they're just, what, bungee? They're just bouncing off. No, they're literally ropes. And when you first start to hit those ropes, it fucking hurts. And your skin will tear. And you will bruise very easily. But if you keep doing this over and over and train yourself to take these bumps on the mat, all those bruises will go away and your body will actually adjust to it. I guess become callous to it. Yikes. And you learned your technician role better. But yeah, we get nice animated scenes of flesh ripping off. Yeah, pretty rad. But Rick wants to quit, and Gagne finds him, open hand slaps the shit out of him, and says, you're also not... Also animated. You're not a fucking quitter, you fucking fuck. You, you, you STD-ridden little shit. You will not quit on me. All throughout this... 30 for 30, we see him on the Sally Jesse Raphael show. And I just want to say, Sally Jesse's tracksuit she was wearing with some fucking high tops. Yo, she was slamming. She really had it. On top of those classic Sally Jesse glasses, she looked very modern. She looked like a, she looked like a, 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 a teenager in London today. The way you said that. Oh, these teenagers in London. Looks like a, one of those London teenagers. I've read stories about London teenagers they and dress, their culture. They dress Have you in, heard that they wear hooded sweatshirts? No, they don't wear the hooded sweatshirts. They wear those jackets where the, the collars come up here, and then they wear tracksuits and shit. Sorry, I guess I'm not as up on London teen culture as you are. I, wa- I read London Teen Magazine. I've, London Teen Vogue. I've read it since 1996. And I can tell you, I can do a podcast about London teenagers and what they do. Can you also feather hair like the Ric Flair look? Yeah, I can fucking feather hair. And I can flail my mullet too. What a glorious mullet he had. Also, Ric Flair's Beautiful. hair, it's a dye job, by the way. He has to dye his hair. They show the animation, all of it, when he was younger days, brown hair. Brown hair don't care, right? Brown hair don't, they, yeah, that's what they say. Brown hair, Richard Fleer. Now, as Rick is coming up, he was in a plane crash and his back broke in three places. And he dropped from 255 pounds to 180 pounds. And he had to rehab. But he was driven. Gagne taught him, Vern Gagne taught him the drive. To professional wrestling. All those stairs, all those slams against the mat. He got a work ethic out of it, at least. Yeah. And yeah, he, he wanted to come back stronger, better than ever. And this is when he got that, that physique, that nature boy. Because he, he saw back to, what was it, an olden times wrestler. But, Buddy Rogers, yeah. Did the he, nature boy Buddy Rogers, the blonde bad guy. Did he formally ask Buddy Rogers to be the nature boy? 
I think there's there was no mention of that. I think there's another Nature Boy too. I'm forgetting the name. I think there's been maybe three Nature Boys out there. But he does say he wants to be the modern version of him, the the blonde guy, the bad guy who just doesn't care, who has the look, who's tan and ready to go, and you know what women want and what guys want to be like. Ric Flair, ultimate heel. I don't know if he was ever face after he after he blew up, became the blonde Ric Flair nature boy. I don't think he was ever face at any point. But his gimmick was so strong that he never changed it. He was always the blonde guy with the robes who was rich and had everything you wanted and was hated or loved. He never changed his gimmick. No. And he actually became Ric Flair. Richard Fleer was pretty much dead. Richard Fleer was just someone that made it through one year of college. <laughs> he was getting married. He was having kids. He was already married before he popped as Nature Boy. And then he starts buying all limousines and these robes, these beautiful custom-made robes would cost beautiful. thousands of dollars each. Oh, they're great. If we, you like sequins, you wouldn't take rhinestones, a, you wouldn't take feathers. a fucking Ric Flair robe. What about nudie suits? Do you like nudie suits? I'm not a big fan of the nudie suits. I'd take a Ric Flair robe over one of those. Oh man, see, but nudie suits kind of have that they're they're more pulled back obviously, but they've got that flair. I love a nudie suit. I wish I could rock a nudie suit. Hey, uh you got the connections now, right? Just just bust one of those old Porter Wagoners out of there. Yeah, I think uh, that Graham Parson nudie suit off of Gilded Palace of Sin from Flying Burrito Brothers is in the Country Music Hall of Fame. It's got pills and pot leaves on it. I'm sure they'll let me borrow it. No problem. Or I will stretch me that out. out. We're kind of bored right now, right? Heist video. Oh, where we take Graham Parson's nudie suit? Really lame heist. <laughs> Yeah, not equal to the heist that his old buddy and Rody um, took his stealing body, his body, stealing his body <laughs> and burning it out in the desert, but still pretty cool nonetheless. Yeah, it fit right. So, not the suit that wouldn't fit, but so, the spirit of the act. <laughs> so Ric Flair, he's now of two worlds, and guess which world he likes the best—the one where he gets laid all the time, where he drinks all the time. He wins his first title in 1981 in a battle against Dusty Rhodes. Probably one of the great wrestling rivalries in history. Son of the plumber, hero to the working man, Dusty Rhodes, against the styling, profiling, limousine riding, kiss-stealing son of a gun, Ric Flair. He's having a hard time holding those alligators down. <laughs> For me, my personal wrestling taste as a wrestling fan... I'm more, I lean more on the Dusty side of things. But Dusty had his suit wearing years too. But he was still the son of the plumber. But they were not. They had to sell it, man. It was that perfect rivalry. The they working were, man versus the elite. Natural, natural opposites. And they were friendly to each other as well. So they were able <gasps> to. Yeah. This is the time where they couldn't go to the same bars together. Because <laughs> fucking Starcade's coming. And you gotta, you gotta hate, fucking hate Ric Flair. And if you're Ric Flair, you gotta hate Dusty Rhodes, daddy. And they were both really good technicians in the ring. They could work off each other and make the shit flow. And let's not underestimate how good their promos were 
Rick could talk. Let's talk about it like this. You see, when I'm the world heavyweight champion, I got to abide by a few rules laid down by the NWA. But when I'm Ric Flair, the wrestler, we're the man that's going to walk into that ring and look across and see Dusty Rhodes trying to take a hundred grand off me and trying to take a piece of jewelry. Who and nobody likes jewelry. Nobody likes to look finer than Ric Flair. Eddie Graham, one of the wrestling greats of all time, is going to be the referee. But I'm going to tell you folks something. This match is going to be the greatest match to ever take place in Miami. Because number one, nobody's ever won $100,000 in one night before. Number two, nobody's ever won a $15,000 diamond ring before. And number three, woo, nobody has ever beat Dusty Rhodes in front of 50,000 people. And tonight, in Miami, who is the big man is my witness. You put it in the bank. I'm walking to the Orange Bowl, and I'm leaving with all the marbles. And I want every good-looking every good-looking woman in Miami to be there. Because I'm going to have 100 grand cash in my pocket, and I'm going to be strutting with a new ring. And I'm going to take the woman of my choice out. And we're going to tear Miami Beach down. A, a fun that's really going to make you pop i mean there's guys in wrestling that are like physically physically amazing but suck on the mic and kind of stay in a mid-card range there is honda a, rousey yeah there is a, well she she walked in famous as fuck still can't talk though <laughs> she, hey you know what she can't professional wrestle either so burn Ooh. sorry Rhonda. I'm calling her. She's going to whoop your ass. I mean, I'm sure she could. <laughs> There's a point where Rick says in one of his promos, I am your God. You want to believe in something? Believe in me. Because right now, I'm your maker. That's a great heel line right there. And meanwhile, Dusty's promising him hard times. Rick Flair, the world's heavyweight champion. I don't have to say a lot more about the way I feel about Ric Flair. No respect, no honor. There is no honor among thieves in the first place. He put hard times on Dusty Rhodes and his family. You don't know what hard times are, Daddy. Hard times are when the textile workers around this country are out of work and got four or five kids and can't pay their wages, can't buy their food. Hard times are when the auto workers are out of work and they tell them go home. And hard times are when a man has worked at a job 30 years, 30 years. They give him a watch, kick him in the butt and say, hey, a computer took your place, Daddy. That's hard times. That's hard times. And Ric Flair, you put hard times on this country by taking Dusty Rhodes out. That's hard times. And we all had hard times together. I admit I don't look like the athlete of the day supposed to look. My belly's just a little big. My hand is just a little big. But brother, I am bad and they know I'm bad. Hard times, baby. It's hard times because Dusty's trying to talk the crowd through these rough times stretched out by these posturing rich boys like rick flair born of a doctor 
adopted by the doctors and handed everything to him in his life, spending more money. His, his robes cost more than your monthly salary. Probably your half a year's salary in the 80s. So Dusty had to be the working man's man. And he had the body of a guy who drove a bus all the time. <laughs> and we're going to have to get back into that old uh, Shorty's episode, The Hard Times. That's what, that's what I was remembering. I was thinking back in the Documenteers archives. <laughs> oh, classic Shorty. Uh, one of the earlier Shorties is the Dusty Rhodes Hard Times promo. Highly recommended. Yeah, it felt good to see that again. I was like, all right, I see what's going on here. That Dusty Rhodes Hard Times promo is literally one of my inspirational things. Like, one of the few things that I can go to to pump me up and, like, make me feel something, It's it, it really is something special to me. The world's heavyweight title belongs to these people. I'm going to reach out right now. I want you at home to know my hand is touching your hand for this gathering of the biggest body of people in this country, in this universe, all over the world now. Reach it out because the love that was given me and this time I will repay you now because I will be the next world's heavyweight champion on this hard time blues. We see a lot of that throughout this documentary, how it got to affect people and, and get them fired up. But I also liked seeing some of that older stuff. Like I had no idea that he got the inspiration for the Ric Flair woo. Woo? From Jerry Lee Lewis. Woo! Jerry Lee Lewis? Really? Yeah. The killer himself? Sure, yeah. Showy dude, too. <laughs> and then they talk about, you know, the Ric Flair strut in the ring. Yeah. It was just something he did on the spur of a moment, and the crowd popped for it. So he's like, oh, shit, I better do that again. You develop this feel for it, and he just had that. He, and he, another guy had that, Vince McMahon. But Ric Flair wasn't on Vince McMahon's thing. He no. wasn't part of WWF. He was NWA. Which, NWO for life. NWA, which would essentially, <laughs> WCW was a part of it back then, and it would... WCW would later break off and Rick would go that way. But yeah, the the Steam the Ricky Steamboat rivalries, the big dusty rivalries, those are all in WA. And Sting like that group from Compton. Yeah, uh Sting and and shit like that, that would come uh later. But Flair, even though he didn't have that national TV audience of WWF and McMahon and everything, he was big time famous. Yeah, he his reputation preceded him. And he got caught up in the myth, though. We heard about this in a few of the other 30 for 30s. The one I can remember was a recent one we did uh, with Tupac Shakur and Mike Tyson. Right. Where they got caught up in their own myth making was a line in that. And that kind of seemed like exactly what was happening here. He started living this life of the styling, profiling, big time in wheeler dealer. Limousine riding, he didn't kiss go stealing, home. son of a gun. Woo! He wasn't going to go home and be dad no. and have his wife when he had 25 women in a limousine waiting after every match. Sorry, kids. Are you, Look, I know you're my son, but let me ask you a question. Are you 25 women? <laughs> go run to your mother, all right? I got to get out of here. This shit is boring. No, he he liked Ric Flair's life so much better. So people thought he actually lived it, which is one of the reasons they connected it, connected to him so well in this role as this villain. 
But then he actually fell into actually living that life as well. Yeah. At expense of his own. You know, and it actually was surprising me how much there's people here. Uh, of course, Muhammad Ali, in terms of talking and and posturing, is a big influence. And too. backing that shit up. Yeah. Is a big influence, especially amongst pro wrestlers at this time. And also a big influence of overall swag. And Snoop's in this shit saying... As a kid growing up watching Ric Flair, he was very inspirational to myself and a lot of other hip-hop artists. Because he represented what we wanted to be. We wanted to be Ric Flair. We wanted to be flamboyant and, you know, to kiss Dylan, Willing and Dylan. We wanted to be all of that. He was a part of our culture and our life. That's why we love him and we cherish him. And we, we've always held him high in the black community because Rick is one of us. NWA wasn't all over the country, but what you would do is when the promotions were still regional, Rick would come into the regions. And because he became a big star by 1981, he could go into California where, you know, all those rappers are from that were in this 30 for 30 and uh, help put their big guy over and still look... Badass Ric Flair at the same time. Eventually, the big multi-circuit wrestling promotion under the blanket of the National Wrestling Alliance would whittle down to certain areas. WWE belled first, then WCW, and then ECW in the 90s until NWA is pretty much right now a promotion in Atlanta that is owned by Billy Corgan. You know, I was going to go to the NWA Crockett Cup in Atlanta, but it got canceled because of coronavirus. Man, maybe you should put the coronavirus in a figure four. I should. I should. And you know, how, you, know, you know how you counter a figure four? You just roll. By laying down. You just roll over. <laughs> For real, you just roll over. It's great. <laughs> Rick started the first heel faction that people liked. Uh, the Four Horsemen, which consisted of Tully Blanchard, Arn Anderson, Ole Anderson, and of course, the Nature Boy Ric Flair. They never mentioned any of the Horsemen in this documentary except for Arn, because he was the most famous of the four. But I knew you would know that. I know you would pick up their slack. <laughs> but Tully, Tully, they interviewed Tully too, and Arn and Tully are um, basically playing the roles of managers to wrestlers in the AEW promotion right now. But they're elderly, so they can't be on TV during these empty arena shows because of coronavirus. But he mentioned how, how special that was. What you said before, wrestlers who could both talk on microphone, do their spots, and perform in the ring and make it look good. And they had five of them together. Kind of became this thing where it was cool to root for them and everybody's throwing up the, the fours. Yeah, the fours. Four horsemen, baby. Throw your fours. Now, now, how awesome was it seeing those hype videos where well, you're talking about Snoop Dogg before, but I, I loved hearing that he was an influence. He was one of those originators of what we call, saw that era of hip hop. Everybody bragging about how much money, how many women, how much their clothes cost. It became like this cool anti-hero thing to do to brag about how much shit you got and how much cooler you are than anybody else. And it was an influence to all, all this this upcoming art form, completely disassociated with wrestling. Well, every hip-hop guy wanted to do those same things. And then we get these videos spliced in of NFL players and college students and high school kids hyping each other up, hyping their teams up before the game with the Ric Flair speeches. Yeah, like 85%, fuck, probably 95% of the rap records 
I own are people bragging about how cool and badass they are. And it is interesting that Ric Flair had something to do with that. And they show like a montage of locker room chants. You're talking to the Rolex. Yeah. Wear it. Diamond ring. Wear it. Kiss stealing. Woo. Wheel of dealing. Limousine riding. I loved that part. I thought that was so cool. Where they're doing the Ric Flair fucking WCW promotion. And these kids, these they probably weren't even alive when he did that promotion. And they're fucking... But they're getting hype as hell. And the entire, <laughs> all the teams are fucking going through it. Just stealing, wheeling, dealing. Limousine <laughs> riding. Woo! How many women do you think you fucked? He, te- uh, he mentions this later on. Yeah, he tells you. Realistically, 10,000 maybe. Were you like, holy shit? I was like, holy shit. Angela did the math. He would have had to have slept with a different woman at least once a day, every day for 27 years. And he wrestled for... Oh, it doesn't seem that difficult nowadays. He wrestled for much longer than 27, so it se- it definitely seems doable. And you're not counting all the times he talked about having five women in his bed. Yeah. And they were all going, woo! You can take like a few days off if you get five at once, you know? Still, to get to 10,000, it's a nice round number. But he was living this gimmick now. The women, the drinks, the partying. Older Ric Flair, when they're interviewing him, the director's talking to him, he's not apologizing for any of this. He's just like, who would you want to be? Would you want to be the guy at, at, you know, at home with your wife and kid? Or would you want to be the guy partying every night that everybody loves with 25 women waiting in the limousine for you? He, does, he just didn't give a shit. He does admit that it was like once the wrestling bug really got into him and he started to embody that lifestyle, that it was like a disease. That totally overtook him. And we talked to, he's got a few kids out there. We talked to David Fleer, who is definitely seems a little bitter at his upbringing. Megan Fleer, she talked about how she got all the gifts she wanted, but she just didn't get her dad. Yeah, they were just, you know, he said family life was too boring for him compared to the life he was living on the road. So, the, yeah, his, his daughter's talking about how she never got any time. You know, dad said he'd come to her basketball game and never did. But then she'd get 20 Cabbage Patch dolls at once. Yeah, right? Every kind. It's, now, it's that same old story. You know who'd suck in a quarantine? Rick Flair. I wonder how he's doing right now. He's- I like that line his first wife had where she said, you know, he loves his kids. She's not going to badmouth him there. But don't trust him. You know what, though? Don't ever trust him. It was kind of a theme running through this. Woman, you dealt with that man. I think you have the right to say what you want, but I understand if she doesn't say it to her kids. Yeah, so. She knew him in, in college before he was Ric Flair at all. He was, he was Richard Fleer. She was very restrained, I thought, <laughs> in her interview portions in this documentary. Well, Rick's bad at monogamy, but he does end up... Why does he even bother to get married? It's weird. He meets his second uh-huh. wife, Beth, and has two kids... Uh, Ashley Fleer and Reed Reed. Yes. And they become uh, pretty important figures later on in this 30 for 30. What but once th- again, he's never home, even with his, his second marriage and his second pair of son and daughter, he's still never home. He's, he's very selfish. He's living that, that same life. He's living the Ric Flair life completely right now. And he still needs that attention though. 
they go back to talking about his parents who just did not get it. Even though he got super famous, he bought a $2 million house that he was so excited to show off. And his dad was like, the hell are you wasting money on? What are you going to do in all these rooms? <laughs> right. They watched him wrestle three times in his life, they but he was going every day for like 40 years. Yeah. It's a fucking grind. But what do you think it takes? We talk about the technique of Rick and what he does in the, in the ring. He trained, he trained punching like He's really good at making punches look like punches. And he trained by punching a string. And he knew that when he could swing on a string and not move it, that he had it down. Do you think that's real? We just heard not to trust him. The story kind of sounds like bullshit, but that was his response to the director's question. How'd you get so good at your fake strikes? He punched this string as hard as he could every day for three years until he could do it and not make the string move. Yeah. And they animated that too. It means he's touching it means he's grazing it without putting he it's just knowing how to direct your force. I mean, you can see him do it. There are wrestlers out there that are pretty good and you see them trying to throw a fake punch and it kind of sucks. Most wrestlers just do this like like forearm slap nowadays up to the side of your jowls. That's kind of what's really common. We see that a lot, but Rick. This is one of my favorite things throughout this documentary. Actually, though, was how well they spliced through all these promos of him talking and highlights of him wrestling. They did a really great job, just kind of keeping that stuff through without without it seeming forced. Yeah. To keep you entertained, to keep it from dragging when it was the scenes of him being interviewed one on one with the director of this film, and it was cool to see talking about how great a, a wrestler he actually was. And this brought me back once again to one of our earlier episodes, the Andre the Giant episode we did. He was really generous inside the ring with the other wrestlers. Like He would make you try to get over with the fans, too. He would use how much skill he had to make everybody else look good. And they mentioned that in the Andre the Giant one, too. When you were the biggest star at the top of your game, but you still made everybody else better when they were in the ring with you, it really left an impression on a lot of these wrestlers, and you could tell that in this one too. It's a lot more challenging to be the heel because you because the responsibility of putting over the hero is all on your hands. The hero can come off kind of flat. Often you just stick a guy, put an American flag in his hand, and tell him to wave it around, and then people yell USA, USA. But you need the heel to have a little more depth going on. He's not there drink, telling you, it's easy to say, drink your milk, take your vitamins. But Ric Flair's got to make you look like a fucking badass. They got to make your corny shit look credible. And he's got to make them want to keep seeing him. Even though they don't like him, they want to keep seeing him in the ring. There's two types of heat. There's go-away heat, which means I wish you weren't here and you were not on my TV. And then there's the, I want to pay money to watch you get beat heat. Where they hate you, but they want to watch you get stomped into the ground. And that's what Ric Flair had mastered. And when you watch a Ric Flair match, a lot of what you're going to watch is him looking like he's getting the shit kicked out of him. For most of the match, and then he uses his brain, see, to turn the tables. Or his dirty tricks. Because you're the, you're the villain already, you can play dirty. And Sting is talking about a match that he had with him. Whereas like this was early in my career, I was I was not peaked yet, and he's like making me look fucking amazing, and that was Ric Flair's job, 
And uh, and one of his favorite matches was in his Ricky Steamboat rivalry, where he's talking about real hard chops to the chest, how they almost had a telepathy. When you're locking arms, you're locking up, they're talking to each other. They're calling out moves like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And it's really fascinating when you start to see the inner workings of it. It becomes just a part of the sport to see how flawlessly people can communicate this. And you get the right two guys in the ring, and it really becomes like a work of art. They mentioned their fitness and endurance because when him and Ricky, who both went through this brutal training with Vern Gagne earlier, they had all that endurance, all that stamina. So in their matches, they never had to slow it down. They never had to clinch or take breaks. It was all action all the time, nonstop. And that's why those were so good. And then he jokes around and says, hey, imagine if I didn't drink how right. good a shape I would have been in. <laughs> no kidding. He talks to a, like a sports psychologist and he asks him some questions. He goes, how many times you masturbate a day? Uh, twice. Every day? Uh, yeah, depending on where I am. Yeah, okay. Which is about five less than normal, right? He goes, yeah, with, uh, with your wife's hands. <laughs> Woo! Because I'm Ric Flair. Woo! And then he asked him how much he drink, and he said, I have... I said, I'll drink at least uh, 10 beers and probably five mixed drinks. He said, well, how many days a week do that? I said, every day. He said, well, how do you, what do you mean every day? I said, I said, I work every day. I drink the beer in the car, I get to the hotel, and I drink vodka. He came out of a chair like that. You drink every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and you've been doing that for how long? I said, uh, well, let me see, it's 1989. I started in 72. Uh, you do the math, almost 20 years. Rick Flair could not stand to be alone with himself. He you could he was not a man that could face himself because when you're alone, you're Richard Flair. And if no one can see Rick Flair, then what is Rick Flair? They asked him if he could have a good time without drinking. He said, I don't know. I never tried it. Why would I? I was having such a good time drinking. He would hate those little, in his words, little shit towns like which he names them Wichita, Kansas City. Kansas City is I can't have a good time, can't go out all the time, because everything in his life had to be a party. And then he kind of uh, breaks down a little bit, saying that he thinks about it every day now that he shouldn't be alive. Kansas, all the shit he did. Kansas City is a uh, is a metropolitan city. I'm sure there's plenty to do there now. Not big enough for Ric Flair. Not Woo! big enough for Ric Flair, I guess. Ten people in a hotel bar. <laughs> yeah, totally. he's taking six of them home. Yeah. with those kamikazes. <laughs> and one of them's the bartender. His name's Louie. <laughs> Can't be alone. Uh, Hulk Hulk Hogan is interviewed, and uh, because Hulkamania was going on. As Ric Flair was tearing up the NWA circuits. But Hulk admits... And before we get into Hulk Hogan, can we talk about some of the other wrestler talking heads in this? Sure. And how disconcerting it was seeing, like, the Undertaker in street clothes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just weird. Well, we saw... Uh, but Animal? From the Legion... Still wearing his face paint? From the Road Warriors, <laughs> yeah, wearing his face paint. <laughs> he was wearing, like, a button-down shirt to get interviewed on camera and his face paint. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> The, I admire that guy. The paints, I mean, he looks exactly the same with the face paint on. But Hulk, yeah, what Hulk was to WWF, that was Rick to w NWA. They were the biggest stars. Yeah, in terms of topping the bill. And it would it was pretty much a dream for wrestling fans to see those two guys tangle up. So Flair represented the NWA and the WC which would become the WCW, at least the part that he was in. 
and the Hulk, Hulk, Hulk Hogan and Hulkamania was WWF. Jim Crockett what, took over for the promotions for WCW and he tried to renegotiate Rick's contract. And Rick was like, this is what I was promised. This is what I want. And Crockett's like, uh, no, I don't think so. So Rick fucking bells and he shows up on WWE at the 1992 Royal Rumble and wins the Royal Rumble. So what do you think's going to happen? You can finally get it. The, the, the top of the bill at NWA is now on the WWF where Hulk Hogan is. And this wasn't really what Rick wanted. He, he said he had offers to leave a few times, yeah. but I never thought he was going to leave because this was the company he'd been with his entire life. It's where all his friends were. I guess they disrespected him pretty hard in those, what were those, the Ted Turner WCW years? No, that would come, um, yeah, that would that would rev up a little later, but they they just wanted to change his contract, and Rick would have been totally loyal as long as you kept your word on that contract. So you got Flair, you got Hogan. Seems like that WrestleMania is a no-brainer, huh? Man, Rick said that winning WrestleMania, that Royal Rumble in his WWF debut, was the single greatest moment in his life. Interesting. And you could see how much he meant it from a guy with a couple marriages and four kids, at least. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, at least four kids that we know of. So I liked when they were talking about the difference, too, between Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair. They were comparing them. Like Hulk was this physical specimen. But he mentioned himself when he's being interviewed here that Ric Flair wrestled hundreds of one-hour matches. Yes. A one-hour full wrestling match. And Hogan wrestled zero of those his entire career. Yeah. He's like, as far as wrestling talent, we weren't even close to the same level. No. Hulk, Hulk Hogan is... <laughs> it was different species. Hulk Hogan was just a big guy with muscles. When you actually analyze his wrestling ability, he was like so fucking boring. He would just he was just really good at popping the crowd with expressions. And he was so honest about this in this, too. He, he was admitting, he's like, me and Ric Flair were not even on the same level as wrestlers. Well, he was so much better than me. Well, this is post-N-Word Hogan, so he has to be very humble now. <laughs> and their, their gimmicks, though, they matched up so well. He's like, yeah, Hulk Hogan was, was that guy selling the vitamins and the milk and get pumped up and be awesome. And he was Ric Flair over there in his bathrobe selling sex and booze. Hell yeah. <laughs> Now, Hogan and Flair had wrestled at house shows quite a bit. WWE, well, everything is on a freeze now, but WWE recently had to pull back on house shows because they were costing more money than they were making. But uh, so the, so Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair actually wrestled each other a, a fair amount. But despite the fact that you would think that this would be the best main event at a WrestleMania. And where all the buildup was. The card changed at the last minute to where Hulk Hogan had to wrestle Sid Vicious and Ric Flair had to wrestle Randy Savage. As a Macho Man fan, I'd love to. I, that I, I'm totally down to see Ric Flair wrestle, wrestling Randy Savage, but it just seems like this is just indicative of a lot of what you hear about the McMahon Empire now. Like these things, like why did you do this? That didn't make sense. But the truth is. Hulk Hogan himself was very much a control freak on his own end. And a lot of the, it probably takes a whole other 30 for 30 on Hulk Hogan uh, to really get into this. But he was a big backstage politician and he was constantly worried that somebody would do anything to distract from his shine. He didn't want to wrestle anyone that made him look too good. He wanted to wrestle guys that can make him 
go over like when he wrestled Andre and he got to slam him. That wasn't the first time he slammed Andre. He slammed Andre before, but Andre set him up to be uh, this superstar in front of millions. So I could imagine that there was probably a lot of backstage politics from Ric Flair's in and from Hulk Hogan's in that probably muddied up this whole situation. And Rick has always been a guy that's willing to put people over, but Hulk Hogan was not really ever like that. Man, you're, you're deep diving. None of this shit was in the documentary. We knew this one would get you, buddy. Yeah. We knew this one would bring out the wrestling mark in you. <laughs> but he would retire, quote unquote, in 2008. I think he required, retired two or three times. He came back again in 2003. But they didn't meet. Say what, G? You're cutting they out? They didn't meet in Iran. Both Hogan and Flair were back in WCW. Right, when Hogan moved to WCW. Both Hogan and Flair ended up back in WCW together. That's right. And they did meet. And everyone was just kind of lamenting that it was great to see Hogan versus Flair, but how great it would have been to see Hogan versus Flair 10 years ago for both of these guys. Yeah, if only the trigger had been pulled a little earlier. But the truth is, well, no, Flair had the ability to make Hogan look good. But because he's so good, who knows, you know, because Hulk Hogan was a shitty wrestler. But But he got the fans, and that's what matters, damn it. All those little Hulkamaniacs around the world... Yep. But we'll go, we'll skip ahead. 2008. You know who didn't have the fans? Who? Sid Vicious. Yeah, he's notoriously dumb. He tried a top rope jump and uh, broke he, his calf. It was crazy. In my limited wrestling fandom back then, he was one of my least favorites. Not yeah. because he looked big and dumb also, but he didn't really have anything going on in the ring. Didn't even have any costumes or anything. And his name was Sid Vicious, and I was a punk rock fan. I was like, come on, man. You're going to take that name and just be this this oaf in panties? You know, Sid Vicious got in a knife fight, I want to say with Arn Anderson, but I could be wrong. But he got in a knife fight in a hotel with someone, and people had to go to the man. fucking emergency room and shit. It was wild. I mean, Can every- we film another episode after this, uh, Bob's backstage <laughs> thoughts? It, I could. I've really become a student of professional wrestling. And I'm only recently back in it, but it's it's so much fun, Drew. It's so, really much the only thing distracting me right now. I need it! We'll let you have it. We'll let you have it, man. Tell me more of your stories, Uncle Bob. One of Ric Flair's greatest matches is 2008, his uh, retirement match. He would come back in, in the for the Total Nonstop Action promotion, now known as Impact. Oof, that would look rough. Yeah. They were showing clips from that. That was rough. The, the TNA... They had some good young guys there, but it was also where the old timers went uh, when Vince didn't want you anymore. Yeah, it looked like they were just, they were literally pantsing him on TV during the clips from this part of it. (laughs) Ric Flair just getting his ass slapped when his pants are pulled down. I guess that's the A in TNA, right? Yeah, ass. Uh, Total nonstop ass. But he has a retirement (laughs) match with Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 24, and it's a fantastic match. And it ends with Shawn Michaels doing his super kick, as he calls the sweet chin music. And he says, before he does it, he says, I'm sorry, I love you. And he super kicks Ric Flair and pins him. Because when you when you leave, you leave on your back and you put someone else over. That's the tradition in wrestling. And it was a beautiful match and the family is crying. And Rick was Rick like... Rick got choked up talking about this. Yeah. Said it was the greatest retirement in sports history. It might be in terms of wrestling for sure, but the guy's home for two days and he's in terms like, of wrestling. But the guy goes home two days and he's like, "This sucks." 
And I think it's Triple H. He's like, look, Rick doesn't like Richard Fleer. I don't know how honest Rick was, but there were people around him that were like, yo, he had some serious problems. If he wasn't rich, this guy would, you got the feeling this guy would be chugging antifreeze. Triple H came off really well in this documentary, too. He was, you know, when Ric Flair came back to WWF in his 50s, he he tried to build his confidence back up. He was like a guy who, Ric Flair went broke. He had to keep wrestling because he didn't save any money because he was living this life. He was living the life of his character. Yeah. And yeah, when he says that Rick, Rick didn't know who Richard Fleer was. He never got to know him and he didn't think he liked him. No. It was a pretty heavy moment in this documentary. Well, one thing that might make it also hard to retire is if you're bad with money. And Jim Ross explains. He needs the money. He didn't save. You know, he forget little things like paying his taxes. He didn't save. He needed money. That's why he kept coming back. This is, you know, live, live a little below your means. And that way you'll make sure you got a little something. But look, he's got million-dollar houses and shit. He's got at least four kids. He's hemorrhaging money. Also, he's drinking every single day. And that's when we start talking. This The real tragedy of all this is where we start talking about his son, Reed Fleer, who was a lot like his dad, maybe, in some ways that weren't too great. He just wanted to be his dad, is what they all say. And we even see these this clip, a really great clip, of him in the ring wearing his little uh, like high school or middle school wrestling uniform and with a medal around his neck. That's like, my dad doesn't waste time on jabronis like you. And yeah. he takes a guy down with his uncle Arn next to him. Yeah. He fucking like <laughs> goes for Eric Bischoff's legs. That was fun. And Reed trained in Japan. Reed was described as one of the guys, but one of the guys meant also drinking and doing drugs with all of the guys. And Reed, a lot like his dad, really put it away. And Triple H is talking about how he's trying to get Reed up into the system. And and Triple H is like, Rick is a consummate liar. Almost to, it almost seems like delusion. So when Reed was failing tests, I'm assuming these are drug tests because they'll overlook a steroid test at the uh, WWE. Well, maybe not in a post- It's kind of strange how coy they played on what he, exactly he was testing positive for, but they I all knew it was illicit drugs. It had to have been drugs, for sure, because I know at some point it was like steroids was almost mandatory at one point in WWE history, but for some reason Vince would get pissed if you tested positive for weed, which is something that would do nothing but help you unwind. So it's like, it was weird times, but you got the vibe that Reed was probably testing for like a cocktail of things. And considering... He... And we're interviewing a lot right now with his, uh, with Reed's sister, Rick's daughter from his, that second marriage, his, his sister, Ashley. Yes. And she's saying the path they were on, again, dad was never there. He moved out the week of her high school graduation of this million dollar house and just left them in it basically. So they just partied nonstop all day, every day in a million dollar house as teenagers. Yeah. Like this isn't normal life. This isn't how people grow up. It's like, but Reed really wanted to be Rick. He wanted to live that lifestyle. He wanted to do that. And he got into the wrestling and yeah, maybe he would have made it, but he got, he came home one night and she said he was all messed up on pills and booze with, which wasn't a rare thing, it seemed like. Yeah. And they just put him to bed. But at some point in the night, he got up out of bed 
and went down to some motel to get some black tar heroin, as you do. In 2013, Reed unfortunately overdoses and he dies at the age of 25. And Rick drank for, he said he drank for a year after that. 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. every day because he couldn't deal with it. And he breaks down at this part of the interview and just says something that, that really resonated with me at least. Like If I could do one thing, uh, I wish I was actually your dad instead of trying to be your best friend, you know, have you as one of the boys. I wish I was actually his dad instead. And that hit me because that's something that my dad used to say to me whenever we were pissed off at him when he wouldn't let us do something fun. He's like, I'm not here to be your friend. I'm here to be your dad. Yeah, exactly. And we'd always hate him for that when it, that came up. Like, oh, come on, dad. Just let us do something cool. Let us have some fun. Let us party with our friends. I'd love to just be your friend, but I've got to be your dad. Right. And when Ric Flair says the reverse of that exact same line after this incredibly tragic incident, man, Rick, Rick was breaking down and it, it hit me a little bit too. You got that Rick was actually very sincere in this thought, you know. It's it's something that maybe didn't occur to him throughout his life and his selfishness. But in this tragedy, you can tell that it probably does, it really does weigh heavy on him. But the thing is, now, as this has happened, Ric Flair is older. All his kids are grown. Now he's just kind of looking back and he kind of can see what he has squandered. And he can see that through the filter of his son's tragic death. And after this year of him drinking it away every day, his, uh, I guess the people in his life, they, they, they didn't say it again. Another thing that they kind of oddly skirted around in this documentary, but it seemed like they sent him to rehab. They said they, he needed help and he finally got it kind of against his will. And his daughter, Ashley is talking about that. You know, her brother died, but that changed her life path too. Cause she was that same thing she was partying all the time and she decided to take her life in a direction that she didn't expect after he died which was living his dream and got into wrestling wrestling. she she wrestles as charlotte flair in the wwe now and she's good she's one of the best dude i did not see that twist coming i'm sure you probably did yeah i just assumed it was another daughter from one of his ten thousand women because I've heard the name Charlotte Flair. Yeah. But I interview her as Ashley this whole time. Yeah. But yeah, that was, I, I thought the documentary did a good job of, of kind of springing that. Yeah. It, it was at a, least not on us diehards. Sure. It was smart. I mean, we in my household is like, it's Charlotte. But they're like, Ashley Flair, right? But yeah, she would go on to become Charlotte Flair. And now, nowadays, Rick is living vicariously through his daughter. And Man, Rick was so happy talking about his daughter's wrestling career. And then when she wins a championship, he's there with her in the ring crying. And he says that this is the greatest moment of his life. Uh, and juxtaposed with that earlier selfishness, it was it was a really touching moment. Yeah, it was. And Charlotte is, uh, like I said, they cut up, a good wrestler. They cut this mashup now of his moves in the ring and old highlight videos alongside her doing some of those same moves in newer current highlight videos. And it was another thing that I thought was just done so well. This mashup of they're both doing the same moves into one video was, was really well done. I got to say, sorry, I'm a, I'm, I like Charlotte Flair a lot. Her woo is a little off to me. Woo! Her woo is a little weird. Your woo is a little off. Woo! 
No, it ain't. It's great. Woo! That's pretty good. <laughs> but that's pretty much that flick. Uh, Nature Boy by what's that fucker's name? Go back in my notes. Rory Karpf. Rory Karpf. Karpf. Who was shown the back of his head a few times interviewing Ric Flair. Yeah. Throughout. I'm sure we'll talk more about that here because, Drew, we don't rate 30 for 30s or other documentaries in a star rating scale. We probably should rate things in rolls of toilet paper in this quarantine, but... Not I've, even when under quarantine we can't see the stars outside? Well, you can stand in your <laughs> you can stand in your yard. It actually, things are weirdly peaceful at the very least. But no, we rate these in Herzogs. You're going to give this one through five Herzogs. I'm going to give it one through five Herzogs. Combine them for best out of ten Herzogs. Drew... What'd you think of Nature Boy? I really liked this documentary. I thought thought they, they did a, a a really nice job going through you know kind of a basic story, a story that we all pretty much suspected. There was nothing, uh, you know, particularly that jumped out about you. Ric Flair's a character that all of us know, at least in some way, on our periphery. I'm not nearly as big a wrestling diehard as you are, but still, I I know all about Ric Flair. I recognize the robes and the figure fours. He's iconic. He's iconic. Yeah. And they did a good job of showing why that happened between Splice and the videos of, you know, the the high school teams doing his promos, which I absolutely loved. And the hip hop connection that I didn't know, seeing his, you know, some of where he got, drew his inspirations from and his training. I thought all of that was really interesting. The story itself, like guy gets big, Forgets his family, buys into his own myth, doesn't spend wisely, has to keep going later on, uh, has tragedy in his life, and kind of repents. It's a fairly basic story, (laughs) if you're thinking about it. In the sports athletic world, yes. Yeah, it's not something that we haven't seen before in 30 for 30s, but it's his personal story. And I thought they did a very good job telling it. I really liked the way they kept splicing things throughout. They had a, a plenty of promos, plenty of wrestling footage. It never really slowed down. They really did speed through this documentary. It went so quickly that I almost had some questions. I thought it was a little strange when they would kind of pussyfoot around the drug issues sure, and the yeah. rehab stuff. Cause they were talking about everything else in this documentary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you know, they said, that a heroin overdose in a hotel room is what killed his son, but they wouldn't say what he tested positive for. Yeah, right. There were some sort of strange, disconcerting things there. But I loved the way they kept it flowing. The animations didn't take anything away from me. I didn't think they were particularly good or well done. Sure. But they didn't take anything away. Just kind of did a little jazz up the flashback scenes. But getting lost in his character, seeing who it was, and then bringing it around full circle with with charlotte flair and then that little that little ending that they had when over they talk about over 40 years of his life nothing mattered except for wrestling except for this wrestling persona that he'd taken on he wasn't uh, it ends with him talking about how he knows he wasn't a good father he wasn't a good husband but he hopes he can be remembered as the greatest wrestler and entertainer because that's what he put his entire life into it all made sense. It, it was an entertaining watch. And yeah, man, it, it just worked for me. The way they told the story was really good, really engrossing. It had the highlights. It had most everything I wanted to. I'm going to give it 4.5 out of 5 Hutzogs. Whoa, that's, some, that's a good score, Drew. Good shit. 
Woo! You know, this this movie is built for me. Uh, my whole household likes wrestling, so we all sat down to watch this. To And basically, from the perspective of a lot of people I'm with here, it's like, let's watch this story about Charlotte's dad. Because in the context of modern uh, wrestling fandom, it's probably Charlotte Flair that's really the most over here. She's and, huge. Yeah. And... Um, so there, there was definitely a lot to like. the The director, I thought, was pretty crafty in the ways he put himself in. Thankfully, he didn't keep himself in it for too long. I'm not convinced it was necessary for him to be in it, but you no. know, I can always be a little forgiving if you just pop in and out or just occasionally hear your voice. So I don't know if he proved it to be necessary for what we did see, but at least, at least it wasn't like overdone. And I think anything, there was a lot of honesty here. I think uh, Ric Flair has had all of his life to fully admit and really break down what a shitty dad he was. But he probably was like a lot shittier in a lot of ways. Because a lot of these old wrestling dinosaur dudes, all steroided out and drunk constantly, They some of these dudes are fucking psychopaths, man. Like, Harley Race died like last year, and it's like some of the stories you hear about this guy. It's like Jesus Christ, and we're talking about dudes that probably like murdered people. And if they murdered people in the right town, the town would probably let them get away with it because they were heroes. Has Ric Flair got me too? Dude, I think some of these old old wrestlers are like invulnerable to me too, and because it, it sounded pretty rough. Because you know, you know, <laughs> he shook a lot of dick. He shook a lot of dick. But if anyone is like, did you know that Ric Flair sexually harassed me? I think a lot of the reaction would be like, yeah, nobody is surprised. You're probably lucky if he remembers sexually harassing you. He probably did it so much that he can't even keep it straight. So there's there's a deeper level of that that probably could have gone into. But other than that, you did get a lot of honesty for people in his life and around his life. Even Triple H admitting that he is a consummate liar. Of course, the wrestling world is notorious for liars, so that may not be that much of a dig because you can actually say that about a lot of guys in that business because lying's a big part of that business. So, But in terms of the approach, the technique, I would say it's pretty, it's one of those basic average kind of like a good standard for a 30 for 30 film. I would say the director did overall a pretty good job. I wasn't too sure about those prolonged up-in-the-face, teary-looking moments. You know what I'm saying? Where the camera's just right there. There weren't too many, though. Thankfully. But I think I'm going to give it a respectable 3.75. Just under a 4 for me. You're going to have to do some math. Almost a 4, but not quite. So what you're going to do is you got you got your 4.5, right? So you're going to add 4, 8.25, 8.25 out of 10 Herzogs. 4, Nature Woo! Boy! By Rory, by Rory Karp. And yeah, that was a fun one. Drew, we might uh, actually have to do another one again soon because I feel like our dynamic, our Skype dynamic is a little better than the others. So I'll be telling him you said that I'll be training. (laughs) I'll be training the others up on quarantine years episodes. But uh, but otherwise, good sesh B. Hey, man, we're here. We're happy to do it. When you mentioned that about the director, I did think one thing was kind of funny to me. When when they did cut to him on that interview stage with Ric Flair, 
it was almost always him asking the most inane question, but then getting a good response out of it. What's a headlock? So it kind of seemed like he's real proud of himself for being like, hey, what wrestler did you like wrestling the most? And <laughs> yeah. then they'd go into this long extended scene on Ricky Steamboat that was really great. But it was like, that's not because of your question, dude. That wasn't exactly the most deep, incisive thing. What Ric Flair can do is take a little and turn it into a lot. He spent 40 years doing that. At the end of the documentary, too, it said that he had a new fiance. Do you know how that went, uh, wrestling guy? I have, is he I, married? This, I was have, a, this was a couple of years ago. This is a pretty recent 30 for 30. I have no idea, but he collapsed a couple of years ago, and it was looking very serious, like he might die, but he ended up pulling through. Appeared on, a, appeared on a couple of episodes of Raw since then, I think. Can't stop working, huh? Yeah, because he's got to pay... Uh, he's got to pay a lot of bills. They got to buy a lot of robes and six hundred dollars shoes. A lot of a lot of harassment lawsuits that got to be paid. <laughs> All right, buddy. Get... A lot of kamikaze shots to buy. There you go. Eight point two five, buddy. Thanks for doing this with me. All right. Hey, man. We got time, right? Yeah. Everyone out there, be safe. Take care of yourselves. Social distance, like we are. Yeah. Watch out for the older folk. Don't listen to the president, who seems to just want. Uh, upwards of 7 million people to die. Uh, we need to protect people, okay? We'll do it. We're in this together. We're getting some scary numbers. Sorry about that. <laughs> Try to but talk I about... like, uh, you know, even, even when we can't sit across the table and record in this uh, era of social distancing, good to, good to see you through this uh, magic of computer recording. And hopefully, this all sounds good at the end. I think it'll be good enough because everyone is going to have to understand. And on that note, and everyone will be dying for content. Listen to those podcasts. <laughs> That's Listen right. Listen to all of the archives at WXNAFM.org. <laughs> well, it's good talking to you, you buddy. You can hear so much. We'll talk. I'm going to talk to you soon, all right? Keep on docking. Be safe, buddy. See you around. So, despite all his rage, that he had to watch his uh what <laughs> i thought you froze oh sorry I think the screen froze for a minute i thought you froze i guess you just froze no you froze <laughs> no you froze first it's going to be summertime and nobody knows how to heat it up better and the four horsemen. And the bottom line is, let me sum it all up. If you don't like it, do something about it. And I'm talking to you, Morton, and you, Gibson, and all your little teeny boppers, and their trainer bronze means nothing. We like big girls. So you figure it out. Dusty Road standing out here in his funky ball cap, in his $5 shirts, his cowboy boots and jeans, Cut the BS. Cut the BS. Well, Big Dust, the BS lies in the fact that you and Koloff and the Garvin and the Rock and Roll can't get it done. We are the champions. I am the world champion. I am your God. You want to believe in something? Believe in me. Because right now, I'm your maker. And Jimmy Garvin, let me tell you something about that bronze. 
She owes me $15,000. She's wearing my coat, styling and stuff, my butt. And I want it back. And Garvin, the only way to get it back is to take it out of your butt. So, buddy, I don't care where it is. You and that bodacious blonde are going to be mine. And Big Dust, let me close by saying this. There's not one of the horsemen ever on the worst day of their life ever bought an article of clothing at a Kmart. Shots seem a wrist, it look like 